Okay, here's a, here's a scenario. A friend, a good friend of yours, a very good friend of yours comes to you and uh, they are discouraged. They are enduring a great deal of persecution for their faith. Um, they just lost their job because of the fact that they follow Christ. Um, and they are, they are absolutely completely confused uh, about what God is doing, uh, what God has planned in the future. Um, what do you tell them? You don't say it out loud. Why don't you think about it? What doctrine or what, what from the Bible, what from Scripture, what, what truth do you share with them? Um, maybe Romans 8.28 comes to mind. And, and by the way, there, there's no real, if you're sharing the Scriptures with them, there's really no bad thing to say to them. But I, I, I'd be thinking Romans 8.28. For God works all things together for good. What, what is it that you would share with them um, during this time of persecution, trial, suffering, confusion, concern? Um, what would you share with them? Well, open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. Let's look at what Paul does. Because indeed, this is the case of the church in Thessalonica. They were, remember, they were suffering. They were suffering persecution. And as we've, read, as we've studied in, in chapter 2, chapter 2 was clarification. He wanted to clarify uh, what, what God was doing in their day. And uh, they were confused. They were concerned. Uh, and in fact, they um, had misinformation. And so Paul um, clarifies for them. And we've, we just spent three weeks in chapter 2, uh, or verses 1 through 12. But I want you to look with me at, ver- at chapter 2, verse 13. And here's how Paul responds to a church that is undergoing suffering and persecution and doubt and concern and confusion. Verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our Gospels, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold up to the traditions or hold to or hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. What doctrine does Paul give them to encourage this church that is suffering and uh, enduring persecution, that is concerned and confused? What doctrine does he teach them? Election. That's probably the last thing <laughs> that many of us would bring up. Because election is, is the source, unfortunately, it's the source of so much unnecessary controversy in the church. Paul frequently used this doctrine to encourage people. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't say, well, it's all going to be better. And no, he could have, he could have, in fact, he said, he wrote Romans 8.28. But he uses election. There are two main verbs in this whole section. 
The one is, God chose you. That's one main verb. The second main verb is, He called you. So, two things in verses 13 through 15, the main ideas in, this, in, in those verses is, He chose you and He called you. Everything else is a prepositional phrase. Look with me again. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit through belief in the truth. All these are prepositional phrases that modify and explain the main verb. So the main idea that he's telling them is two things, the two main ideas. He chose you and he called you. Why would that and why should that be encouraging? We know that if he chose us, he's not going to unchoose us. If we really ultimately were the ones who chose God, given our finite, fallible condition, what might happen? I could change my mind and unchoose him. In fact, many believe that. Many believe that you can lose your salvation. Um, what I want us to do is I want us to look at these two ideas that God chose you and God called you. But first, there's a textual issue. And that is this phrase, God chose you from the beginning. Some of your translations will say, as first fruits. Now, let, let me explain to you what's going on there, because uh, we know it's one of those two. Okay? In, in our Greek manuscripts, some of them have from the beginning, and some of them have as first fruits. In the Greek, they, look, they are spelled exactly alike except for the last letter is different, is different. Now, there is one difference, though, and that is from the beginning has a preposition, apa, and our case means beginning or first. But remember, when Greek was first originally written, it was all in capitals and there was no spacing. So both words would look very, very similar. The only difference would be the last letter. One, would be, one has an N, and one has an S. So, how do we explain the difference in manuscripts? Well, one, one difference might be a scribe maybe just saw something a little differently and put an N instead of an S. We're not sure. The reason why most go with from the beginning is nowhere else does Paul ever use that, that construction. But he uses first fruits all the time. So let me ask you, if you're a scribe, and, and the, the, the copy of the manuscript you have before you has, has a phrase in there or a word in there that Paul has, you know Paul has never used. And it looks exactly like a word that he uses all the time. Which one might you write? You'd probably be prone to, to change it to the more natural reading and not the more difficult. So that's why a lot of translations opt for from the beginning. Because it's, it's probably the one that's most difficult and least likely to have been copied. So, just to, just to raise that, because I know that some of our translations, they differ, and you may have had a question about that. It doesn't really change the meaning. Um, what does he say about God's choices? But by this, this is not isolated in the Scriptures. Uh, keep your uh, mark here. Turn to First Peter. Peter uses this very same doctrine to encourage the church in exile the church that had been dispersed. He uses this very same doctrine to encourage them. 1 Peter chapter 1. 
to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion, all these, all these regions in Asia Minor, according, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with His blood. So he uses the very same thing as an encouragement to them. And so he says, God chose you. Now, what does he say about God's choosing me? He says it was from the beginning. Now, what question ought you to ask if you're studying this, this passage and you see God chose you from the beginning, what question ought you ask? What beginning of what? Was it the beginning of time? Was it the beginning of my, of, of my life? What, what, the beginning of what? Um, well, if, if you look at with me at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 4. Even as He, God the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before God laid the foundation for the cosmos. It said, He chose you. Before anything existed, He chose you. And another word that, that, that is used is He knew you. He knew you. He, he, he didn't know about you. He didn't look down the... The word doesn't mean looking down the quarters of time to see, oh, one day, you know, Nick is going to exist. And No, He knew, loved, and chose you. I remember when I was in elementary school, and at recess, we'd, we were going to play... Well, we played all kinds of politically incorrect games. Uh, but we'd have two captains. And what would they do? They'd choose a team. Now, um, this analogy breaks down because usually we chose a team based on what? Athletic ability. Yeah. The bigger and the, 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 the weaker, smaller, they got picked last. So the analogy breaks down. But here, here, here's, here's, here's the point. God doesn't say, the Scriptures do not indicate that God says, okay, Jesus came and died, and now if anybody wants to be on my team, they can be on my team. He says what? I knew you and I chose you. It'd be like saying, a dif- the difference between saying, I want to have a team, anybody wants to come on it, you join my team as a piece of Seth, I want you on my team. That's the difference. Now again, I know what you're thinking. Well, what about, did anybody else have a chance? Anybody else have a I don't want to get into that this morning. I want us to see what it says. He chose you. Now, a lot of people say, well, he chose me because he looked down the quarter of time and, and saw that I was going to believe, and then he, believed, then he chose me on that basis. But that's not what the text says. You're, you're, you're importing that into the text at this point. What does the text say? He chose you. Before the foundation of the world, he knew you by name and he chose you. That ought to be encouraging to us. From the very beginning, He chose you. Not not an undifferentiated mass, but you. He chose you. And what did He choose you for? What does the text say? To what? 
be saved. He chose you from the beginning to be saved. Now, where are my teenagers? You, did you do your homework? Uh-oh. Oh, this afternoon. Okay. I get, last week I gave them homework. Did you do your homework? This afternoon, right? Yeah. Uh, to look up, they had to pick five verses. Your parents should have told you this. Five verses on saved. This is a biblical word. It's all throughout the New Testament. This is not just something the independent fundamental Baptists use. This is biblical. To be saved. Saved from what? What does the very word imply? Danger, danger. The very word implies that there is something that is undesirable that he prevented in my life, and namely to, to, to receive his wrath and condemnation. He chose you to be saved from the very beginning. Now, does that mean that, um, uh, that from the time I was conceived, I was saved? No, because Ephesians 2 says what? We were all children of wrath under His condemnation. We were objects and children of wrath under His condemnation. So this is not like a... This election is not a zapper. It doesn't just zap you and you're, you're saved from day one. What is, has to happen in order for us to be saved? We're, saved we're, we're chosen in eternity past but we're saved in time. Look with me back in the text. Through two things. We are, God chose you from the beginning to be saved through or by means of sanctification of the Spirit. The first means by which God saves us is by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification. This, this passage is dripping with theology. What's sanctification? Anybody know this? What's sanctification? Being set apart. Okay? Now, the Bible speaks in terms of sanctification in, in well, actually three ways, but two primary ways. One is sanctification that is positional. In other words, that at the moment I believe and I trust in Christ, I am sanctified. Um, look with me at verse, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is where verbs become very, very important. He, he's talking about those who are saved and those who aren't. And he lists some of the, the fruit of those who are unsaved. Um, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy. In other words, these are regular lifestyle patterns of their lives. And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. We're going to look at that in a minute. You were what? Sanctified. You were sanctified. You were set apart. It, It was an act that is completed. You have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So there is an aspect of sanctification in which the Holy Spirit sanctifies us in a moment. When we believe, we are set apart. We are, we are in fact, 
made holy. Not in our practice, but in our position. But the Bible also talks about sanctification, not just positionally, but progressively. Uh, Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10. So you didn't think that you're going to get theology in church, did you? You didn't didn't come expecting to get theology. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is present tense. They are in the process of being sanctified. So there is a, a sense in which when we believe we are set apart, we are sanctified to Christ, but then there is a progressive nature to it. This is what we normally think of in terms of growing and progressing in our holiness. And in fact, this is the process by which God starts us on and will only ultimately be completed at glorification. So he says, we are chosen in eternity past, but we are saved when the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. So there is an operation of the Holy Spirit in our lives once he has chosen us, as all of us at a different periods of time in our lives, that the Holy Spirit in His sanctifying ministry, sets us apart. Number two, back to Second Thessalonians, by the sanctification of the Spirit, number two is, and, what? Belief in the truth. There, there's, there's this misunderstanding or this mischaracterization that's, that's, that's flowing around out there about divine election, and that is that no matter what they do, you're just elect, you're, you're, you're in, you're good to go. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, yes, God chooses us in eternity past, but that, is, that comes to fruition or that, that comes to completion when two things happen. When the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, and in fact, regenerates us, which we're going to look at next, and when we believe the truth. We actually have to believe. He, uh, I often hear people, well, he drags people into heaven kicking and screaming. First of all, let, let me address that just for a second. If my two choices are to go to hell or get drugged to heaven, dragged to heaven, kicking and screaming... I'll gladly let God drag me to heaven kicking and screaming. I have no problem with that. And you shouldn't either. But that's not what the Bible shows us. Yes, we have to believe in the truth. But because that person is sanctified and that person is washed, they are now able to believe the truth. Do you see the the point? In fact, that's what he says. Sanctification by by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, um, number second verb, verse 14. To this he called you. Now, what should you ask yourself? What is this? What is this? To this he called you. Let's look at the text again. What do you think this is? But what is the content? What is he referring to when he says this? What do you think? Ideas. What are options? Kind of, yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's really not specific. 
he's really talking about everything. He, he, to this, he's called you to, to, to sanctification, to belief, to all of these things. To these things, to this, he has called you. Um, and how did he do that? Through what? What does it say? Through our gospel. He chooses us in eternity past, but He calls us in time. What does He mean by call? There are two different kinds of calls in the Scripture. One is this internal call. We see this in John chapter 10 when He says, My sheep hear My voice. That's that internal call. That for those that God has called, those those who God has chosen, those who who are His sheep, they hear His voice. That's not a post-conversion experience. That is describing conversion. They hear His voice, this internal call, because they have been washed, they have been sanctified. They hear this call and they follow Him. But there's an external call. And that external call is the proclamation of the Gospel. So in other words, God uses the external call to call them internally. Classic passage, Romans chapter 10. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter, chapters 9 through 11 is Paul is addressing the unbelief of the Jews. And, the, and, and really what he's addressing is uh, he's recognizing and everybody else is recognizing that very few Jews really have trusted in, in the Messiah, in Jesus. And so he's saying, well, the question is, well, has he broken his promise to them? Has he forgotten them? Has he abandoned them? So he's really 9 through 11. He's addressing that, 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 that general issue. And in, in chapter 10, he's addressing this issue. Well, maybe they haven't really heard. Maybe they haven't really heard of the gospel. Maybe they haven't really heard about Jesus. Look at me at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. We're not just zapped. We have to believe. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then, then he addresses this whole issue. Well, how can they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? What's the answer? Yeah, they have. So their unbelief is not based on the fact that they've never heard. But the point is that they that God uses means. And the means by which he, he saves those who He chose from eternity past is through a divine operation, the sanctifying work of the Spirit in a person's life, regenerating them, washing them, and enabling them to believe. And then, in fact, they are called upon to believe through the preaching of the Gospel, through the presentation of the Gospel, and then they hear the shepherd's voice in the Gospel. 
and they believe. That's why we can have ultimate and absolute confidence in sharing the gospel. We don't have to change it. We don't have to manipulate it. We don't have to have a smoke machine. We don't have to have special lights. All we do, all we have to do is proclaim what the Bible says the gospel is and then let the Holy Spirit do His work, His sanctifying work, and enabling them and freeing them to believe. It's simple. But it's powerful. God chose you and God called you. God chose you from eternity past before He laid the foundation of this whole thing called creation. He chose you. And in time, He called you. You heard the Gospel and, and we've shared our testimonies uh, before in many different ways, many different forms, and many different stages in life. But at some point, we heard the Gospel. He did something inside of us. Why did I believe and my best friend didn't? Was I smarter? Was I more spiritually inclined? No. It was the call of the shepherd. It was the shepherd's voice that, that he enabled me to hear through the external call of the Gospel, that internal call of the Spirit in my life. And if you believe in your life. God chose you. God called you. This church needed to hear that. This church needs to hear that. God chose you. God called you. He chose you in eternity past. He called you in time. So then. Now he gives them the so what? Or the so then. By the way, before I move on, he says, the ultimate goal in all of this was to do what? To obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look at all the doctrines we have in these two verses. We have, it, the word's not mentioned, but we have justification. We have election. We have regeneration, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Justification is the belief. Now we have glorification. He said, all of this so that you might share His glory forever. In fact, he says the glory, you maintain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a what? Genitive. What does he mean glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is it, what does that mean? That, yeah, that, 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 he ha, that he possesses, that he experiences, that he is able to share he shares that with us. That we might share with Him in His glory. So then, verse 16, or 15, So then, brothers, two things. Stand firm and hold fast. This is what we call perseverance. Perseverance of the saints. He says, I want you to persevere. So then, in light of the truth of God's regeneration, His sanctification, His justification, and the promised glorification, does He say, sit back, you got it made, you're, you're in heaven, you, get, you punched your ticket, you're, you're safe, you're good. No, what does He say? So then, stand firm and hold fast. What, what, do, you, what do you picture? What, what image comes to mind when you hear, stand firm and hold fast? Vigilance, perseverance, resilience. In other words, there is a, we have a responsibility. We, we have a responsibility to stand firm in what we know to be true and what God has already done in our lives. 
We're to stand firm and hold fast when we, as we talked about and prayed earlier, when we, when we suffer persecution. We're to stand firm and hold fast when we get sick. And, and when, we, when we experience uh, chronic, debilitating um, physical issues in our lives, we're to stand firm and hold fast. When we get discouraged and when we get disappointed and, and, and when we get, listen, when we get bored, this is something that I think is really not addressed in the church. I think a lot of Christians are just bored out of their mind. And, and a lot of it is because they're not reading the Scripture. They get in a rut and they're just bored. They're bored in their faith. They're bored in their Christian life because they're not learning, they're not growing. They have stagnated, they're stale, and they're bored. They think like, well, I've pretty much arrived. They would never admit this, but they think I pretty much, I'm pretty content with what I believe and what I know and what I've experienced. He says to stand firm and hold fast. And he says to stand firm and hold fast in two ways. Look with me at, again at verse 15. Stand firm and hold fast to what? To the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, this is interesting. Where have we seen that phrase before? No? Well, the Catholic Church proof texts it. We're going to talk about that. Look with me at verse 2. What started all of this? Chapter 2, verse 2. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a, what, a spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us. And now what is he saying to them? Hold fast to the, the real letter. Very same phrase. Hold fast to the real traditions, the real spoken word, and the real letter that you've received from us. Now, what's the, what was the content of the, the, the... Now, this is what Rome teaches. They use this verse to teach that, see, church, the traditions of the church are, are authoritative. And, and this is one of the verses that they... That they point to those who those who what we call hold to material sufficiency within Rome uh, other other within Roman Roman Catholicism is not monolithic a lot a lot of different beliefs within Roman Catholicism but some some in Rome say well no we don't need a scripture verse to tell us this that this is just what the church teaches that the traditions of the church are authoritative but those who who try to show it from scripture use this verse is he is he saying that this is extra biblical traditions is he saying that these traditions are from the church? No. What traditions is he referring to? This. <laughs> yeah, the apostolic traditions. And this is why Rome has to go, therefore they have to go backwards and say, well, the, the Pope, the apostolic succession, the Pope is blah, blah, blah. Basically saying this. You need to stand firm and hold fast to that which you have heard already. And now that is being inscripturated, now is being written down, you need to hold fast to that and stand firm in that. The Bible never treats divine election as a soft pillow for us to lay our heads on until Jesus comes. That's not how the Bible treats divine election. Divine election is God chose us from, from the beginning of time, from before time. He chose us in time. And now, therefore, we are to stand firm and hold fast in His Word. 
in the traditions that He has passed on. But number two, we are to hold fast, stand firm and hold fast in His love and grace. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. I want you to circle loved us and I want you to circle grace who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope. How did He, do, how did he give us eternal comfort and good hope? Because we deserved it? Through grace. He, he says, I want you to stand firm and I want you to hold fast, not just in the Word, but I want you to hold fast in His love and grace. Have you ever heard of John Owen? John Owen? John Owen, Owen. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, I have a few minutes here. Uh, here's, here's a little factoid. And, but you know John Bunyan, right? Uh, not personally, but he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a ton of other stuff too. Spent most of his life in prison. Many of his children died while he was in prison. Um, our kids have learned about John Bunyan, by the way. They're learning about, uh, what are they learning about today? Anyway, huh? Tyndale, yeah. Um, John Owen arguably was one of the greatest minds the church has ever produced. He was a Puritan pastor. Oh, uh, Paul Bunyan couldn't get Pilgrim's Progress published. A publisher wouldn't touch it. Didn't want to, didn't want to, didn't want to publish it. John Owen read it and he said, this is, this is unbelievable. And he went to his publisher and said, you've got to read this, you've got to publish this. And the publisher did and I feel like Paul Harvey. Now you know the rest of the story. John Owen, if you read, this, this is kind of an abridged version of John Owen. This guy was brilliant. And, and, and most of us, when we hear the word Puritan, we think of what? Yeah, stern, uh, not uh, unhappy, sit down, shut up, read your Bible. You know, we, we have this, this image of Puritans, and, and sadly, usually from our secular school system. Um, he was a Puritan of Puritans. Let me read you, in his class, one of his classics is Communion with God, although the, t- the original title, back then their titles were like you know, three lines long. This is the Puritan of Puritan. This is, this is the theologian of theologians. I want you to listen to his words. He's talking about communion with the Father. Having a loving fellowship with the Father is very much neglected by Christians. Ignorance of our mercies and our privileges is our sin as well as the cause of our troubles. We do not listen to the voice of the Spirit that we may know the things freely given to us by God. This makes Christians sad when they might be rejoicing. It makes them weak when they could be strong. How few Christians are actually acquainted with this great privilege of having a loving fellowship with the Father. How full of fears and doubts that they are over His goodwill and kindness. At the best, they may think that there is, a, there is no goodwill in the Father to us except that which was He purchased the high price of the blood of Jesus. It is true that only through Christ can we have any communion with Father, but in, fact, but in fact, the free source of all desire for communion with us in the Godhead is in the heart of the Father. Eternal life was with the Father and has manifested to us. He said, let us then see the Father as full of love to us. Do not, see, do not see the Father as one who is angry 
but as one who is most kind and gentle. Let us see the Father as one from, who from eternity has always had kind thoughts towards us. It is a complete misunderstanding of the Father that makes us want to run away and hide from Him. The psalmist said that they that know you will put their trust in you. How sad that we cannot stay long with God in spiritual meditations. The Father loses the company of His people because they are so ignorant of His love to them. His saints keep thinking only of His terrible majesty, severity, and greatness. And so their hearts are not drawn to Him in love. We must learn to think of His everlasting gentleness and compassion. We must remember His kind thoughts towards us, which, we have, been, which have been from eternity. Let us remember how eager and willing He is to accept us. If we did this, then we would not be able to bear one hour's absence from Him. Let, then, let the, then this be the first thought that we have of the Father, that He is full of eternal love for us. In fact, that's how he started verse 13. Brothers who are loved by the Lord. We are to stand firm and hold fast in His Word. But we are to stand firm and hold fast in His love and His grace. And as I, as I thought about it for, for a long time in my Christian life, if I, if I were to really be conscious and honest, I would say, you know, Jesus was the one who loved me. But the Father was the disciplinarian. God the Father was the disciplinarian, right? He's the one that had, he's the, he's the dean of students. He's the one that, did, that doled out the discipline. Jesus was the, the good, was the loving parent that only, always got to do all the fun, loving stuff, but God the Father had to do the ugly work. And Owen is saying, that is so far from the truth. He said, the very fact that, that what was it that called and caused Jesus to come and to die for us? The love of the Father. He says to this, this, this struggling church, this church that is confused and concerned about their role and their place in God's redemptive plan, a church that was that was suffering persecution and trials and struggles. He comes to them and he says, I want to remind you that God chose you from the beginning. And that in time He called you by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And when you heard the Gospel, you believed the truth. Therefore, I want you to stand firm and hold fast to God's words. And I want you to Stand firm and hold fast, knowing God's love for you and God's grace for you. That is a timeless message. That was a message for the church in Thessalonica. That was a message for the medieval church. That was a message for the 18th century church. The 19th. That is a message for us. This is a timeless message. God chose you. God called you. So then stand firm and hold fast in the truth of His Word and in His love and His grace for you. 